wonderful time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome into Garden Views, everyone. And this week we have one of my new colleagues from the Space Court Foundation, Yana Yakushina, uh, guesting. Hey, Yana, how are you doing today? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me for the podcast, Jeff. I'm feeling amazing. Excellent. Excited. Now, folks, there is a little internet lag. Yana is in Belgium presently, um, so if there's a delay, we'll obviously try to edit out as much as possible. If we don't catch it all the time, um, that's what's happening here. Um, let me give you folks a little bit of a bio on Yana. She is a lawyer, she's a researcher, and she's a dark sky protection educator. She's working on her PhD thesis at the University of Ghent, which is in Belgium. I sort of remember from uh, high school history, the Treaty of Ghent being there, being important at some point. Uh, the main objective of the thesis is the identification of the legal framework for the recognition of light pollution as an environmental problem. Yana is actively involved in dark sky protection awareness activities. She attends international conferences appears on podcasts right here, and workshops as well as providing consulting services. Yana also specializes in space law. She is the Deputy Director of Legal Research and Special Projects at the Space Court Foundation Incorporated. You all know about that. You heard from Chris Hearsey and, and Nathan Johnson. Um, and Space Court Foundation develops and manages projects related to the regulation of space activities across different jurisdictions. And one of its projects is building the big Book of Space Law, and Yana is part of that, and she's uh, participating and assisting in building some of the Russian space law aspects of that. Uh, she's successfully participated in the international legal research uh, projects in the field of dark sky protection and space law, and collaborate with organizations and government, body, government bodies worldwide, including the Lomonosov, I hope I did justice that Moscow State University, Ghent University, the EU Commission, the International Dark Sky Association, the Starlight Foundation, International Astronomical Union, and UNOOSA, uh, among others. So, Yana, obviously very credentialed. Sounds good. Uh, is there anything that you want to elaborate, any of those groups or any of those projects? No, this was uh, perfect for introduction. I think we can just discuss some of the projects during the podcast, maybe. Perfect. Well, since you wrote the bio, I guess it's perfect is, is exactly what it should be. Um, so I, I want to touch on, I know that your passion is, is light pollution and dark skies, and we're certainly going to devote probably the mother's milk of the show to that. Um, 
but or the mother's load. I think that's the right metaphor. Anyway, um, can you tell us a little bit about Russian space law? And if you know, if it diverges any from Soviet space law? Uh, yeah, sure. Because currently, as you mentioned, uh, I work in the big book of space law uh, with the Space Court Foundation. We analyzing, yeah, Russian and the Soviet uh, space law, and we're trying to put it all together, which is the hard work, because Russian space law and Soviet space law is actually huge. So I can start uh, that I can state uh, that actually Russian space law starts from 1930s. Uh, during the USSR, when the first acts uh, related to ballistic, uh, ballistics were developed. So actually, current Russian space law are completely dependent on the USSR space law. It's important to note uh, that during USSR, all the space law were uh, secret. It was very confidential and more military than nowadays. Um, yeah, uh, there were so many different um, government bodies who were governing the space activities during the USSR and currently we have Roscosmos, which is half government, half private organization, but basically is a government organization. Uh, I don't know where to start. Let's start from the international, uh, big international agreement. Russia is a part of, uh, we have big five international agreements in the space law, right? And Russia is a part of four of them. So Russia is not a part of uh, Moon Treaty. I think it's more a political decision for the future exploration of Moon and the Moon resources. So I think this is a key issue for a lot of big countries. I think uh, for the United States too about the mining and uh, natural resources in outer space. Uh, I don't know. Do you have a specific question about the current or the post-Soviet uh, space law? So I will have some kind of a structure. <laughs> Um, this is more like... Well, I, I know that, you know, there's been a little bit of controversy that the International Space Station is Russian or, or most of it is under Russian jurisdiction. And uh, the United States sort of depends on the cooperation of Russia to have access to the International Space Station, as I imagine cosmonauts and astronauts from other countries would have as well. Um, and with the war in Ukraine that, you know, that at least theoretically presented some challenges. It seems that they were largely worked out or ignored. Um, but how does the International Space Station work and where does that fit into the framework of any treaties? I think it's the basic treaties of the international law. I was actually thinking that it's not 100% Russian. The International Space Station is divided between different jurisdictions, as far as I know, actually. It's more the countries are dependent on sending the rockets uh, to that station, because especially in the past, when the spaceport was uh, Baikonur as the main spaceport for everyone, so then the access to the International Space Station was really dependent on the USSR and uh, then the Russian Federation. But I don't think it's kind of the issue. It's more about the agreement between the different countries who share the International Space Station. So including the United States. Sorry, it's my cat. <laughs> She's jumping. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think it's... Uh, the Outer Space Treaty, you know, is the basics uh, of the International Space Station. Okay. You said earlier that the Soviet space law was mostly military. 
Um, what is the difference between military space law and non-military space law? I mean, beyond the obvious of weapons. The main difference is uh, that when it was purely military, let's say it like that, it was confidential and secret. So the general public and the private companies, for example, didn't have any access to the space activities. While currently it became less military, let's say it that way, because I cannot say that space activities are excluded from the military activities. I think they're still very related to each other, but currently since it's less military, you have the access of the private uh, companies who can uh, send satellites uh, or develop space tourism. Also, the funding subsidies for the governments to the private actors and the space activities are also more open. I think this is the main difference. Like the more open market to the other actors except the governments or government dependent organizations to the space. I think this is the main aspect. Okay, very interesting. Is Russia party to the treaty that, that basically agrees to the peaceful use of space and space exploration and celestial bodies? Yeah, of course, the outer space treaty, yes. Okay. Yes, uh, uh, Russia signed it at the beginning of it. It's interesting because states, you know, they, they sort of do what they want sometimes, but you can sanction a state you can there are legal places where countries can sue other countries for violations and there are you know and then there's a lot of private actors in space now does russia have any private actors that are sort of you know like a spacex or a blue horizon i don't think so because they're kind of private but they actually have more than 50 shares from the government <laughs> so they're still kind of government dependent so we uh, currently we don't have 100% uh, independent uh, private entities for the space exploration or space activities. Okay. Maybe small satellites, yes, but not for the big like space, space tourism or something. My primitive understanding of the Russian space program is that a lot of it takes place in Kazakhstan and Lake Baikal. Uh, is that still the case? Can you repeat your question because you were picked up? Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, is, sorry. Is a lot of Russia's space program still dependent on having access to Kazakhstan? Yeah, of course. Okay. But it's interesting, the legal regime of Baikonur is generally really interesting because it's basically leased by the Russian Federation and it's very unique agreements uh, from the international law. I think it's the only one which exists in the world when one country basically leases a part of another country and have even military activities there. Yeah, even like Russian police is in Baikonur. The government structure in Baikonur itself uh, is also interesting because you have Russian government representative or military or also police representative. You also have Kazakh representatives from the government and the military and the police. And you also have like a mixed commission from both sides. So it's actually extremely interesting legal regime there and of course they still depend on it but uh, currently russia has five spaceports but baikonur is still remain uh, the main one okay so do you this is rank speculation but due to the war in ukraine and russia pulling a lot of resources and frankly up till now and today is november 25th 2022 looking not so strong um 
Do you think Kazakhstan might try to use that to exert more power, get more independence over, you know, this lease area, or are they getting paid and paid well and they're they're okay with the the situation? Let's let's say uh, I I'm not gonna take any sides because uh, yeah okay I'm kind of half Russian half Ukrainian which makes it very difficult for me to discuss this subject but I don't uh, also I'm not a politician so I can't get inside their heads but I don't think that uh, it's out of the interests of Kazakhstan to do something with uh, leasing this uh, Baikonur because they're paid indeed very well okay and always in time. Okay, very good. And also they're getting a lot of benefits from this agreement between the countries. So, like export and imports and, yeah, other tax benefits. Okay, very good. I don't know very much about Kazakhstan. I mean, you know, obviously it's not a subject that uh, American education, you know, unless you're looking for it, focuses on. Um, And, you know, for the part of my formation, you know, formative years, you know, high school, middle school, even university, there was no Kazakhstan. It was part of the, you know, we just knew the Soviet Union. Um, you know, so uh, it wasn't until the 90s when I, you know, might have even heard of it. Anyway, uh, moving off of that, uh, let's move into your um, your favorite issue, the thing that you you are working on the policy of, and that is light pollution in the dark sky project. So why don't you tell people sort of uh, an overview of what is that? Sorry, can you repeat your question again? I'm sorry. Can you give us an overview as to what the Dark Sky Project is and what light pollution is? Okay, yeah, I will begin from the beginning. Let's say it like that. Uh, I will start from what is light pollution. I will not give you a very difficult uh, description, but uh, shortly, light pollution is an environmental problem which just goes by unwanted, misdirected, unnecessary... Um, yeah, and unneeded uh, lighting, artificial light at night. So uh, we can have it on Earth, so the light pollution from the outdoor lighting, any type of outdoor lighting you can imagine, it's like the street lighting, the lighting of the buildings, commercial advertising like the billboards, also road lighting and so on. Some scientists also consider indoor lighting as a source of light pollution because if you had lit offices at night, which are empty, it will, of course, also contribute to the general levels of light pollution. We also have light pollution from the outer space, uh, which is due to cancellations, and the mega cancellations, especially, which were launched by the SpaceX. They contribute, uh, because they reflect the lighting, they also contribute to the general light pollution. And in my opinion, light pollution is generally underestimated problem, uh, because it has impacts on the various areas including the dark skies, which is the most obvious one, uh, and it violates the astronomical activities. But it also significantly impacts environments in terms of biodiversity, habitats, uh, including protected areas like Natura 2000 in Europe. It also impacts uh, human health, uh, outdoor aesthetics, which, because I think a lot of artificial light at night is just ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it has a lot of other impacts and unfortunately it's not really well regulated most of the time it's regulated from the perspective of energy efficiency but energy efficient lamps like LEDs they actually contribute to the increase of light pollution due to the color spectrum so yeah this is very short overview of light pollution (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I saw an article that you, well, you didn't write it today, but you posted on LinkedIn today. It was already published and, you know, it was good news that it was being added to the agenda of, uh, I think, the Bonn Convention. Um, and what I didn't realize, I never even thought about, frankly, was that it impacts migration patterns of species. So I, I guess it's primarily nocturnal. Maybe I'm wrong about that. T to tell us a little bit about that. So the article was actually published today, <laughs> so this is why I shared it today. But I wrote it uh, yeah, some time ago. Um, so basically, as I said before, light pollution impacts biodiversity and the different species. It's important to keep in mind that more than 70% of uh, species, uh, living species in the, in the world are actually nocturnal. Uh, and people are the main part of the world and we are not nocturnal and we are increasing <laughs> the uh, artificial light at night, harming the whole environment. Uh, very short examples how artificial light at night impacts uh, migratory species. Uh, I will tell you about the sea turtles. They are considered as migratory species. So the sea turtles, the newborn sea turtles, or the big sea turtles, when they go into the beach, into the shore, to lay their eggs, they urinate themselves by the moonlight and the starlight. However, if you have an increased illumination of the shore side, uh, they will go in another direction. So not to the sea where the moon and the stars would be, but towards the light. And sometimes, if it's the young little turtles go uh, to the lit areas, they can be smashed by the cars. So this is how we have the decrease of the sea turtles population. Another example I will give about the migratory routes. So let's imagine we have uh, protected areas like national parks. And the national parks normally they are not lead inside. However, they lead around, uh, yeah, around, the, around this area. You have the elimination, for example, for the road lighting. And basically, if you take the European Union, uh, there is Natura 2000, uh, which was created as a, let's say, chain uh, connectivity of uh, protected areas to allow, uh, to allow species to migrate from like one area to another. However, if you have these illuminations around these uh, Natura 2000 areas, uh, species are basically blocked in these parks and they cannot move around due to disturbance uh, by the lighting. And if you go, uh, I don't know, should I tell something about the article itself and the sure. international uh, action towards light pollution mitigation? Yeah, I, I think so. Whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, well, uh, if you are very interested, you can always read the article. I would really appreciate the feedback. But basically, the article I wrote was about how Convention on Migratory Species from 1979 takes the action towards the well, the first steps to mitigate the light pollution, and uh, they started to develop uh, guidelines uh, for the light pollution uh, mitigation measures. But again, guidelines are recommendations, right? So they are not binding, and uh, they will probably not have that significant impact on the future, like legislation uh, development. However, it's important step that uh, United Nations Environmental Program Framework started to recognize light pollution as a stressor for the biodiversity. 
Also, it's important to keep in mind that uh, CMS uh, is connected with the other uh, UNEP conventions like uh, Convention on Biological Diversity. So if one problem is conceived by one convention, it may lead to the uh, yeah recognition of by the other conventions. Uh, so yeah, I think it's an important step. They provide a lot of measures already how to protect the seabirds, uh, also sea turtles, but they're developing now uh, for uh, guidelines for the protection of the other migratory species which are protected by the framework of the CMS. So here's another limitation that these guidelines would be limited to the species protected by this convention, but we have more species which are impacted by the light pollution, unfortunately. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, how do they but put... if you want to know in more detail which measures they propose, then you should go and read the article. <laughs> of course. Uh, my question is one where I'm not even sure you can answer, but there's so many species of life on the planet. I mean, I can't imagine you get a group of people being able to agree upon a, you know, a, a substantial enough list. There could be tens of thousands of different uh, animals and life forms impacted here. Um, who, who's, what group is in charge of doing that, of categorizing the actual, you know, animals, you know, there's probably more than one type of sea turtle, uh, there's probably nocturnal birds, et cetera, that, that are impacted. I think it depends per convention. Uh, they have, uh, their governing structures, uh, government bodies for each convention. Like the CMS has the standing committee and uh, I think also scientific committee and they're in charge of uh, uh, analyzing and uh, like analyzing the research findings about uh, the species and then proposing it to the list. And countries also who sign this convention are proposing on the basis of their scientific research, which time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Species should be added and then it decides every, during the every conference of the parties, they decide which species should be included. But yeah, you imagine how complicated this process is to make all the countries which signed this huge international environmental law uh, conventions to add something or yeah to the protection list so also we have IUCN who deals with the red list but red lists uh, are also then have a recommendation character at the international level there's about 200 countries in the world how many how many countries are part of this group the CMS convention yes uh, 133, I think, at this moment. Oh, that's a pretty uh, significant. I was, uh, and are they? Is it representative of the full world? In other words, are there countries represented from what we traditionally call developing economies, like you know, Africa and South America and parts of Asia don't you know have as much of a voice in world affairs as say you know. The United States, Russia, China, Japan, the EU, 
Um, you know, are, are there, you know, does, you know, I don't know, Tanzania and Bolivia and, uh, you know, Myanmar get, get their say in this as well? Well, let's say that uh, I think a lot of developing countries are part of uh, the environmental conventions, of course. However, speaking about the developing countries, they are not interested in the protection of biodiversity. Because let's say developed countries are more interested in the protection of biodiversity and the environment more than the developing countries. Because developing countries have the, the goal to develop. <laughs> and normally when you developing the country, you are not caring about the environment. I don't know if it makes any sense, but this is the conflict of interest somehow. No, it does. It, it, it absolutely makes sense. They're trying to catch up so that, you know, the, you know, their ends justify the means and then they get, when they get to a, you know, a more modern economy, a more developed, more economically sound, maybe then they'll feel like they have the luxury to worry about other things. But I don't know. I think world history yeah. has showed that you, 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 you never feel like you have that luxury or uh, there's, there's always new problems. It's a yeah, shame. Yeah, isn't it. And basically, if I can drop uh, some, uh, speaking about the African countries, they have the most amount of biodiversity, right? And they're completely dependent on the money which are sent by United Nations organizations and developed countries, as put it like that. Uh, and they support them that they continue protecting the biodiversity instead of cutting down all the forests to build the new housing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's all about that, all about the money and about the support. I, I imagine the Amazon as well, the Amazon countries. I mean, I know Brazil has, you know, the, yeah. the, the former president wasn't exactly a friend to the environment. Indeed. But they also have a, a, a large amount of different uh, diversity of species and but yeah diversity of biodiversity which sounds very weird but they have really a lot of species representative in that continent too yeah okay well that, that's very interesting um how you know how do you convince people that they need to be paying attention to this especially in this you know age where there's sort of worldwide inflation and you know, people are worried about their, you know, their gas bills and their food bills and stuff like that. You know, how do they pay attention? How, do, how can they help? How can they get involved? How can they get the word out? Well, let's say you have different target groups, which you have to approach differently. So if you, if I will address it to the general public, uh, I would like to inspire them. So with uh, providing a workshop, during the workshop, we normally explain what is the problem about the light pollution, giving kind of interesting examples uh, why we should pay attention to lighting. Because the problem with artificial light at night is that we used to it so much that we really don't care about it. We never look uh, like people. When people see like three stars, they think that it's a starry night. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this is like the main problem, but it's actually like not a starry night. It's like three stars and one satellite flying there. This is the situation we have because of the light pollution. Uh, currently, I think the best approach uh, to explain the problem of light pollution due to the energy crisis actually saying that we should mitigate, uh, yeah, diminish actually the amount of artificial light at night because it's also related to the CO2 emissions because it's energy consumption also it increases the bill. So all the citizens are paying actually for the artificial light at night, which most of the time is unnecessary. 
um, yeah, from that, I also have a group now in Brussels who are working together and uh, they do street astronomy. So they, they basically take a telescope uh, in the evening, go to the party areas in Brussels uh, and just show people the stars with the telescope, like drinking people and it really inspires people and people started to think that there's something else except uh, like, yeah, their phones. <laughs> and Earth life. It's all about the inspiration and the right approach. Okay, very good. Uh, no, nothing like getting to the party people in Brussels. That that seems like a that seems like a pretty good job, um, or even volunteer position. Um, are they planning to take that approach and going to major cities around the world? Do they have the funding for that? Yeah, funding is always the problem. Light pollution is an emerging. Uh, yeah, it started to be more recognized. Uh, let's say our project is not funded and all these local dark sky protection organizations, they're not very well funding and people are completely volunteering. So uh, there is not enough resources for that. However, on the international level, we have uh, two big organizations. The biggest one is International Dark Sky Association, which is, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be the advocate of the IDA. I'm very honored for that. Uh, IDA does a really great job with raising awareness about the dark sky protection. They also they have a lot of workshops. Uh, they give uh, global conferences. Recently, there was Under One Sky. You can watch it on YouTube. They were representative across the globe, explaining the different aspects of light pollution and their work. Uh, IDA also involved in the designation of the dark sky parks and dark sky areas. They also do the certification. And another big organization, uh, it's also Starlight Foundation, but it's uh, in Spain, in Canary Islands, and they are focusing more on the dark sky tourism and the importance of saving the sky more for the astronomical activities and try to like make people be involved in astronomy through the dark sky tourism, let's say it like that. Well. So, well, it seems like out of all of the problems in the world, this and outside of the world, this might be one where it's not so overwhelmingly too late to, you know, it's not it's not a Herculean task to get ahead of it. This is one problem which we can probably get ahead of. And while it might be first on many people's list, it, it is one that we, we can do, we can take steps to mitigate it now, whereas, you know, cleaning the oceans and cleaning our streets and things like that, you know, is going to take a lot more work. And, and, it, and it certainly is, you know, just as important. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this is a cause that uh, if you got behind it, you know, you could probably pay dividends later and never get to the point where, you know, you're worried, uh, you know, sort of the proportionate problems that we're facing here on, uh, down here on terra firma. Yeah, I agree. Uh, light pollution is one of the easiest problems to be solved. It's about the switching of the lights, you know, even where we can start, just switch not all of it. Like I'm not the supporter of like complete darkness. Uh, when we talk about light pollution mitigation, it's of course a decreasing amount of light, but it's also using the right lighting bulbs uh, and uh, the right direction of light, which will require investments. But we can also do the cut off first which is free and we can already start in the direction of mitigate one of the environmental problems which we face nowadays you know 
as you mentioned, like, yeah, plastic pollution of ocean is much more difficult to solve than light pollution. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the solutions for light pollution is one that, you know, theoretically might actually save somebody money as opposed to cost them money. Like you said, just turn off the lights. Uh, you know, don't, don't put your brights on when you don't need to, yeah, things like that. Yeah, you know, and it's also you can enjoy the calm. Like, I really like this light pollution movement because you go a lot uh, in the parks in the evenings to watch the stars and you have the feeling that the time stops. And can you imagine how hustle of the cities can be, like, calmed down if we have just a little bit of less lighting? It just gives you a calmer vibes, I think, also. It's kind of good. I think it will decrease just human stress also, too, you know. Yeah, I, I would think so. Once you leave Times Square or Las Vegas, you know, Tremont Street, uh, you can feel a little bit, you know, less overwhelmed. I'm sure it's the same in other cities. I know Tokyo and others have those highlights, you know, you can't really get, you feel like you're in a prison of lights kind of situation. Um, but I, I was really surprised to learn about, you know, how, how many animals are affected by it. And like, who doesn't love sea turtles? Everyone loves the little baby sea turtles. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, everybody loves it, but nobody think about the obvious, uh, very harmful effects of them. But I can give you a very good example of a case law. Like there was a very good case. Um, uh, it was a court decision. I think it was 2007. Um, it was a decision by the European Court of Justice. And it was a case, a European Commission against, I think it was Helletic Republic, Greece. And Greece was, uh, yeah, accused of uh, not mm, not following the obligations of uh, habitats directive of the European Union due to not protecting the sea turtles and uh, yeah from the exposure of the artificial light on the shore. Hmm. So even in 2017, we already saw how how the environmental law can be used. For the protection. So, uh, it's a lot of so how does that court work? Does it, it hands down an order, and then if Greece does not comply, are, are there sanctions? Does uh, some international bank is it able to seize assets from the country of Greece, or or we don't know because Greece complied? Don't remember how this uh, case ended, but I think uh, it goes for fine and the requirement of uh, yes changes of the lighting installations. I think. But I, I don't remember this case specifically, but uh, definitely it will require an action from the country after the court decision. So who um, who brought the case? Is it the EU that brings the case? Who, who is the plaintiff? Uh, European Union Commission, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. I'm sure about it. All right. That, that, that's interesting. I mean, one of, the, one of the questions about international law is always, how do you enforce it? And how do you enforce it on an unwilling state? Uh, especially one that's a strong, unwilling state. I mean, Greece, you know, probably needs the EU more than the EU needs Greece. Um, you know, I, I wonder how it would play out against, you know, pick my country. If it was against the United States, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 be, it would be hard to enforce against a big country if they don't want to do something, you know, if they didn't care about public relations and things like that. It's not. Yeah. Of course not. We have now currently a very good example of it. 
pure violation of the international law and zero opportunity to do any enforcement. Come on. This is the main problem and illusion, I think, of the uh, international law. That, that is the problem. The problem of its enforcement. Yeah, that, that, that's a problem with international law now, and it's in, and you know it, it it's going to probably now and then and it will be. <laughs> yeah, and with space, it's it may be even more so. I guess it depends how easy it is to find valuable minerals and metals and things like that, and and bring them back to Earth. Um, but right now, I'm happy to, you know, latch on to the hooks theory that uh, Professor Coplo uh, talked about, and and. Uh, Chris and Nathan from Space Corps Foundation and, and others as well that, you know, as, as long as nations and businesses have most of their operations and funds here on Earth, they are susceptible. So those those hooks will, you know, keep them on us for the, you know, for the next hundred years or so. Um, so how, how do you feel about the... the... Yeah, let's, uh, let's pray for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yana, anything else that you want to tell us about dark skies or light pollution? I just want to raise awareness about light pollution. I will recommend people to uh, deem, uh, to mind the night and start deeming the lights in their houses and outside and try to look up more. <laughs> because we are cons- it also goes not only for the dark sky protection but space law too because when I tell somebody that I'm a space lawyer and also do the dark sky protection everybody thinks that I'm joking or something <laughs> a lot of people think that space law is a very new thing which is actually definitely not I always say this thing do you remember Cold War? that right. ring the bell <laughs> this is just like kind of a very big thing related to the space law too Yes, but sir, I don't know if you have any questions. No, it'll certainly get bigger as you go into uh, commerce in space, but uh, that's maybe a little bit of ways. Um, how can people find you if you want to be found? Uh, you know, on social media, professional um, links, or uh, find your work. The best way to find me is LinkedIn. You can just Google me by my name and find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I post there all the work uh, which we do with the Space Corps Foundation and I publish my works there too, like the article I published today. Sometimes I share my presentation which I give on my public talks. So I think it's inter- if you are interested in uh, have some insights from the legal perspective of the dark sky protection and the general information for that, you can definitely visit my page. I also publish the same, yeah, I think LinkedIn would be the best thing. Okay. Wonderful. And folks, you can always help us. I have all the contacts related to my email stuff too. Oh, great. Um, Yeah, and she's very responsive. And I'm happy to call her a colleague now. I look forward to working with her in the future on projects. Um, And uh, you can certainly indirectly support her work by helping with the Space Corps Foundation. It is a tax-exempt, not-for-profit. So you can make donations as well. And the year giving, all of that good stuff, be part of the making space a better place b- before your kids and grandkids get there. Um, with that, I want to say thank you to our guest, Yana Yakushina, uh, lawyer, scholar, PhD candidate, and environmental uh, advocate. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us from Belgium. Uh, it's, and uh, have a happy 
Christmas and New Year season, if you celebrate, even if you don't, have a happy season. And uh, Thank you very much, Airport. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. All right. Sorry, folks, for the lag. That's why it was a little bit you know, awkward. And if we edit it well enough, you, you won't know why, but, but there was a little bit of a lag. So, everyone, thanks for tuning in to Garden Views. Hopefully, you got a new view on the skies and on lights and on light pollution. And hopefully, you found the stuff on Soviet era and Russian uh, space law interesting. Uh, but hopefully, this ignited a, a little bit of a passion or an interest uh, you know, in light pollution, something that is solvable uh, because a lot of our problems seem like there's no solutions and this one seems to have a solution so uh, it's a little happy news here garden views is, is not like garden of doom which is you know mostly doom um, so yeah anyway thanks for tuning in and you'll hear from us next time in garden views
wonderful time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.